0: They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, is hey, yeah. he's out.
1: Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look at, look at this. Brett is out. He's demon mad. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan.
2: Welcome back to part two of the Brett Boone podcast. On this special episode, Brett sits down with Hall of Famer and Kansas City icon, George Brett. You make the playoffs for about a 10-year period. At Kansas City Royals,
0: I, I don't know. I don't know if they get enough credit, enough recognition, how good you guys were from the mid 70s to the mid 80s. You go to the playoffs 76, 77, 78, 80, 81, 84, 85. And for 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 the early ones, there were that was back when there was only two teams that represented each league. So right. it's not like right. six guys are making the playoffs. I mean, the, some of the players, you, we mentioned Hal McRae, you know, Quisenberry, Willie Wilson, Amos Otis. John Mayberry, there,
1: Amos Otis, Freddie, Patek, Cookie, Rojas, Frank White. I mean, we had a good team. We had, And, and, and you got to remember one thing, Brett. The Royals didn't become a team until 69. That was their first season. And they did it without free agency. Our owner, Ewan Kaufman, didn't believe in going out and signing free agents you get it all through the draft and trades and to put together a team that stayed together that long and was that successful, I think is one of the greatest uh, franchise or greatest. um, um, uh, What do they call those things? Uh, Expansion, uh, the expansion era and the expansion. era. I think it's one of the greatest success stories of all of all expansion teams in the history of baseball.
0: It's what an unbelievable run. Get you to eighty five, second chance at that World Series. And you got a new you got a new group. We you know we've had Gooby on the show. We had a, a young Brett Saberhagen. Um, mm-hmm. Lonnie Smith, who was who was on that Philly team that beat you in 80 skates is playing with you. Um, the great Dick Hauser.
1: Right. Me and Frank White were still on the team. Hal McCray was still on the team. Um, yeah, basically yeah. everybody else was new. You know, which happens from, you talk 76, 85, 11 years, you got new players, Willie Wilson. Um, let me see, we had Pat Sheridan, uh, Motley. We had Steve Balboni, got him in a trade from the Yankees. Um, Jim Sundberg came over to help, uh, who was a very, very good catcher, came from uh, Texas. And we had all these young pitchers and Saberhagen, Gumazad, Jackson, Buddy Black. Um, and they needed a veteran behind the plate that could, you know, really mentor these guys. And I think Sonny did a great job. But I remember in 84, the year we, we made the playoffs in 84, and Hal McRae and I were talking one year in spring training, and they're bringing up a guy named Saberhagen, whom I never met before, Gubazar, who I never met before, Danny Jackson, whom I never met before. Charlie Liebrandt came over in a trade, threw about 72 miles an hour, never met before. And I'm going, oh, my God, Hal, we're going to be so bad. The good thing is we'll be getting a lot of pitches late in the game to hit because people are just going to be throwing fastballs down the middle trying to get the game over. But the one thing he and I did not know was that these guys were good. They were really good from the minute they stepped on a major league baseball field. So we make the playoffs in 84, lose three straight to the Tigers who had a great, great ball club. Two of the games were decided by one run. And then 85 comes around and we find ourselves in the, in the series and you know, Saber Hagan's the MVP throws a shutout the last game at age 22 or something, but it was just a, A great, great group of guys led by a great pitching staff. And we had Dan Quisenberry in the end, and Steve Farr emerged that year as a closer also. And then Steve went on to the New York Yankees, and he was their closer for about four or five years. So, I mean, it was a great team. The way we won it coming back, we were down three games to one to Toronto in the playoffs won the last three, um, who I think on paper were a lot better than we were. But uh, we were able to beat them. And then doing the same thing to the Cardinals. Lose the first two games, win game three, lose game four, and then sweep them three straight. And you know, to win a World Series is something special. It's something that you'll never forget. But I think doing it at home is even makes it more special. And it was the first national championship or the world championship by the Royals, uh, the second in Kansas City history. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl way back in 67 or 68. So it had been a drought for the city, and it was just amazing how this city, I saw it a couple years ago when the Royals won. I saw it a couple years after that when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl here in Kansas City. But it's uh, it's amazing how I think in a small Midwestern town like Kansas City, it just brings everybody together. If the Rams win, uh, if the Raiders win – no, the Raiders are in Vegas now. If the Angels or Dodgers win, you got two Major League Baseball teams – yeah, it's good for the city of Los Angeles, but it means so much more to a city like Kansas City or Milwaukee or, you know, a small Midwestern town. That's what really makes it special. And to be a part of this community still after or for 48 years now, it's, uh, you know, this is my home. I love everything about Kansas City except the weather. Right now, it's 100 degrees, so it's not a lot of fun.
0: The weather, just a little thing. You know, I would love uh, Southern Cal. I, love, I, I dislike a lot of things about it except the weather. So I'm kind of, yeah, the I'm reverse of you the
1: traffic, the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I know when I go out to LA and we're going to go play golf and it's like, we're going to go play Air country club and we're in Manhattan beach and we're going to key off at one. We got to leave at nine thirty in the morning to get there. You know, you need a, heli- you need a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great place. Right, to visit, eight, but I wouldn't want to live there.
0: 83. We got to talk about it. It's old hat for yep. you. It's, it's comes up every year that the replay, uh, the pine tar off goose gossage. Yep. You got McClellan behind the dish and Billy Martin stirring it up. Um, yep. it's, it and it changed, it changed the rules. It changed the rules. Now no longer is that is that pine tar an issue.
1: Um, What's going through? Well, your, I Georgia think they could cook. tell you to clean it, it up. Basically, what they have to do is they have to warn you before, hey, your bat's getting a little dirty, clean it up. But back then, I didn't even know the rule existed. I don't even know what it was for, to be honest with you. The Yankees, we played the Yankees two weeks prior to that. I didn't do anything exciting. To And, and they knew my bat was, you know, maybe illegal at the time, but I didn't do anything. To, you, know, you get a two-out single, but right field, big deal. So they waited, and sure enough, I was using the same bat. And I uh, used that bat for a long time, obviously, because there was so much pine tar. And uh, and I hit the home run off goose in the ninth inning with two outs. And, okay, now we'll protest the bat. And so they did. I didn't know anything about the rule. And sitting in the dugout and somebody says, I think it was Frank White, says, you know, they might call you out for having too much pine tar on that bat. And the umpires have been out talking for like five minutes. And and uh, and then as soon as as soon as he says that, Tim McClellan looks for me in the dugout and points the bat out. I said to Frank, I said, if they call me, out, I'll run out there. I'll kill one of those son of a bitches. As soon as I said, bitches, man, he points his finger at me and says, you're out. I ran out there. Obviously, I had no intention to hitting Tim McClellan. I know what would happen to you if it did, but I wanted to give him a good argument. And Joe Brinkman um, grabs me from behind, gets me in a chokehold, and now I'm just trying to get away. And that's what made it look a lot worse than it really was. And um, they ended up, you know, calling me out. Good argument. Gaylord Perry was on our team. Gaylord being the collector he is and the memorabilia freak he is, he steals the bat from the umpire. And he throws it to Steve Ranko, and Steve Ranko's sitting there with the bat. He just takes off running into the locker room. Well, all of a sudden, you can see in the video, all these guys are chasing after the bat. And uh, they wanted to send it to Lee McPhail, who was American League president. John Sherholtz, our general manager at the time, writes a letter of protest. Sure enough, Lee McPhail agrees with John. Um, They overrule the calling. We have to go back on a mutual off day. We were on our way to Baltimore. The Yankees were at home. They had an off day at home. I think they had a 1 o'clock start. Obviously, I didn't go to the game because I was kicked out. And uh, they resumed the game from that point. And um, everybody gets back on the plane, and then we fly to Baltimore. So it was, you know, it's kind of funny. I was always the hemorrhoid guy from 1980 to 1983. And then after that, I became the pine tar guy. So I I looked at it as the best thing that ever happened in my life was that because every on deck circle I would go to all I would hear is uh, hemorrhoid jokes on the road and then every on deck circle I would go to after july twenty fourth nineteen eighty three they were all pine tart jokes so it was uh, it was a good thing for me it showed the enthusiasm I had my desire to win the type of player I was the emotions that I played with and uh, I'm kind of proud of it to be honest with you
0: and and for people out there listening it, George star that's the ultimate getting a home run taken away from you at least temporarily
1: yeah it's, it's, George back in, back, stadium, in day, back in the in day back in the day. stadium off a guy like goose Gossage off a team that i that I wanted to beat more than anybody, the New York Yankees. so that that it just kind of all all magnified and the emotions are high, and and then they say, no, you're out, and I just lost it, I just lost it, but
0: it it's But but you can't put – and you know how important a base hit is. I mean, we get get our hit. I'll tell you what, you're you're not taking this hit away from me. I will fight you to the death for this. I remember one time – I remember one time, and this is back, you know, when there was rain delays and you had to finish. If you didn't have that five innings in the books, they would wipe out. They would wipe out the stats. They wiped out a game. I was two for two in the fifth inning and I'm sitting there and I'm going and it's raining hard. And I said, I'm, I'm going up to everybody. I'm like, if, if the game ends, our stats are gone. And you know, a lot of guys are over to, uh, we're winning the game at the time. A lot of guys are over two. like, yeah, I hope they rain it out. And I go, what do you mean? They, ho- I hope they rain it out. You realize I got two hits. Those are two hits that nobody's taking right. those away from me. They end up canceling that game, George, and I'm telling you, yeah. I had to. Go, I was in the corner with a twitch. Like, you just took two <laughs> hits away from me. That's the end of uh-huh. the world. People don't realize, unless you're on that field, how important. A hit is a hit is a hit. And every okay. time I see that replay of you coming out, I said, I couldn't imagine, let alone taking a hit away, a big home run like that, You're going to take that away from me. People don't realize how important those are to us as players.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: Morgana, where did
1: that come from? Morgana. Well, we were playing a game in Kansas City, and I had seen her before, never met her before, but I'd seen her run out on the field before. And sure enough, we're playing a game in Kansas City, and uh, all of a sudden, I mean, I had no idea what was going to happen. I'm coming up to bat. I see this busty, old, busty young woman running down the, climbed over the railing by the third base, uh, by third base, started running towards home plate, bouncing up and down, and and uh, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, what's this? She's coming to get me. And she and that's what she did. She was just a kissing bandit, and she was a stripper. And whenever she would go to a town, she would run out on the baseball field and kiss a player. And that would let everybody know she was in town, and people would go see her and tip her, and and that's how she made a living. So she got me there, and then the next day, we got rained out. So I I was asking around, I'm saying, hey, where's this Morgana at? I want to go see her. So sure and I was single at the time. So I find out where she's at, and I go up, and the bouncer's out front. I think it's like a $10 cover, and I give him 10 bucks. And I said, hey, I'm um, George Brett, and she ran on the field and kissed me. I want to know if it's all right if I run up on stage and kiss her during her act. He said, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. So sure enough, she's up on stage, she's topless, and she's doing her act. And I just go running out and give her a kiss, and next thing you know, we become pals. Not pals, pals, but we just became, you know, friends. So we fast forward to the All Star game in Seattle. She does it again, and she comes and gets me. This is an All Star game in Seattle. Uh, do we keep in touch? Oh God, I've let me see. Some, they did a thirty for thirty on her, and uh, and they asked me about her. Um, I got her number. I think she still lives in Columbus. She's married. And um, and her and I are kind of long-distance friends. Every once in a while, we'll call her or she'll call me. How's life? How are your kids? And stuff like that. But she was, she was just a gal that, you know, loved baseball and loved to run out of the field and kiss guys, and I was the lucky target twice.
0: And I think the second time, that All-Star game, guess who's catching? Yeah. Bob
1: Boone. Your dad was catching? Oh, did, yeah. uh, God, your dad <laughs> probably thought he, she was coming to get him.
0: <laughs> That's right. The arrogance. The oh, arrogance sorry, of that Bob, Bob Boone. Said, the Bob, ego said, on that said, guy. Oh,
1: yeah. You know what? It would have been great if Bob said, Hey, I think she's going to kiss me. I said, Bob, step aside. She's coming after me. Step <laughs> You're married. You got kids. I'm single. She's not going to get you in any trouble. That's right. She's going to go right. for the single guys, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot he was catching.
0: All right. You hit a hundred. You, at you game? hit three. Were you at the game? Were you I at was the at game? the game. The All-Star game was in that Seattle? Se- Yeah, 79.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. I, that was the day Matthew Boone uh, was born. That game, oh Dad was God. Dad was catching Matthew. My mom goes into labor, has Matthew. Aaron and myself went to the game, so I I I, re, I was sitting there watching.
1: Wait, your mom had the baby in Seattle?
0: Nope, my mom had the baby in Philadelphia.
1: Oh, so you Dad made to the All Star game,
0: and back then. They didn't take that that leave of absence. Dad said, "I am going to the game. I don't know how many of these right. all star teams I am going to make." Sure. <laughs> so oh, mom yeah. was mom yeah. was on her own. <laughs> that's unbelievable. <laughs> that's how you. That's how they did it back then. Yep. Nowadays, mm-hmm. oh, you'll you'll get in big trouble for that stuff. Yep. All right, you wow. hit it, you hit three hundred eleven times. I've had a few guys on the show: Paul Molitor, Edgar, Chipper Jones. And to me, because I know how hard it is, I, I did it twice. And when you do it, it's so—it's it, such a great feeling. It's such a great year. You did it as a career. I'm in. I'm in all of the guys that that have a three in front of their number. Especially, you played 20 years, and and I think today they're trying to de-emphasize being a 300 hitter. There,
2: and, and it, I agree. I agree. It, it, I agree 100%. it pisses.
0: It pisses me off because Lucky. I have, so, I hold the guys that hit 300. I, I, I will pull you aside. If you're a fan, if you want to talk about 300 and, oh, and, and people want to poo-poo it a little bit. I said, you don't understand how hard it is to hit 300, let alone do it for a career. And the guys that did it, I look at it in a different light. Like, you don't understand. I mean, 300, it sounds like, oh, yeah, he's a good player. He hit 300. I said, no, I don't think you understand. To hit 300 for a career. To hit 300 for a month is great. For a season is unbelievable. To do it for a career, I hold it in such high regards. And it really does bother me that it's been de emphasized this year because a 300 hitter is a 300 hitter and should be recognized, I think, at the highest level. Are you with me on that?
1: No, Brett, I am with you 100%. What does a 300 hitter do? He gets on base. How do you score runs by being on base? If you're a 300 hitter, you're moving runners from first to third. The next guy hits a sacrifice fly. If you're a 300 hitter, you're, you're hitting doubles and scoring runs. The more you're on base, the more runs you're going to score. And, and it just drives me crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy in today's game where 300 is a rarity and guys are hitting 260, 270. They're striking out 190 times a year. Because all of a sudden, the powers to be in baseball, it's all these formulas and all these things that average doesn't mean anything and home runs do. That's all that matters is home runs. Strikeouts aren't bad. Back in the day, if you struck out, you were embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I lost a lot of helmets. I broke a lot of helmets after striking out. After striking out, I'd go in that tunnel and I'd throw shit and I would, oh God, throw my bat. I'd I'd go crazy. I'd go literally crazy. If I struck out twice in a game, suicidal. I struck out three times in one game my whole career. My whole career. And I did that when I was 40 years old. And I used to take a lot of pride in not striking out. In fact, one year, I think I had more home runs than strikeouts, which, which today, it, it's, it's never going to happen. I used to have more walks than strikeouts every year. That never happens anymore. Walks are, I mean, a dime a dozen. You know, strikeouts are, 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 are so common. That's why games take so long now, and they're trying to speed it up. How about just having guys get base hits? Just get base hits. And you know when strikeouts occur to me the most? I, I sit and I watch this, and i in spring training every year when I shoot up for the Royals, and when I go to games now, it's 2-0 on a hitter, and the guy's not even a home run hitter. And he's getting a fastball right down the middle. And what does he do? He swings from his ass and fouls it off. Well, guess what? That's the best pitch you're going to get that whole at bat to hit, correct? 2-0 fastball. Now Usually. the guy makes a good pitch. Now it's 2-2. Two and two. Then the guy makes a great pitch. You swing and miss, strike three. Well, the best pitch you had, the best chance you had to get a hit was 2-0. 2-0 and what did you try to do? You tried to do too much with it. And that's why that conversation I had earlier with you about Mike Moustakas, be the best player Mike Moustakas can be today, I don't think players realize what kind of players they are today. I don't think they realize it. I know I wasn't a home run hitter. I hit 320 home runs, but I didn't hit 320 home runs by trying to hit home runs. I hit 320 home runs by trying to hit the ball hard, not far. And if you hit it hard, it will go far you're a golfer. I'm a golfer. What happens when you swing as hard as you can the golf ball? What happens? You don't square it. You don't square it. What happens if you just try to smooth one? You square yeah. it. I mean, that's what, that's what <laughs> the players of today do not understand. They do not understand it. And you show me somebody that does, and I'll start watching every at-bat that he has because I enjoy watching good baseball, not bad baseball.
0: Quality, quality at bats. That's where it starts, yeah. and I think that's a 300 I don't, you know, I hitter.
1: That's a 300 hitter. The, yep. the 300 hitter has more quality at bats than a 250. Hitter.
0: That's all it is. And 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 with with the game on the line against an elite closer who's not going to walk you, your on base percentage does you no good in that situation. I need somebody that that. When Chapman's on the mound, I can get a good at-bat out at of him. I'm not looking to walk in the ninth inning when I'm down by two. I need somebody to get a base hit. And right. I think that gets lost in the equation. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Quality of bats I don't know. I can only speak for myself, but I know.
1: Well, you're down, by, yeah, wh- you're down by two runs in the ninth inning and the leadoff hitter is trying to hit a home run. Hey, what a concept. Hey, let's hit a single. Maybe the next guy will hit a double and the next yeah. guy hit a single. That's better than a solo home run.
0: And and I can only speak for myself. I didn't hit too many home runs when I had even even a, a replica thought in my mind of I'm going to hit a home run. It seems like when I hit a home run, it was like wow, that was cool. I didn't mean I didn't know that was going to happen.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, in my role with the Royals, I, I get a chance to speak to the minor leaguers every year, and I go down there and I said, okay, who led the minor leagues in home runs? And you know, so I'll say, who hit 20 home runs? Oh, who hit 25? Who hit 30? You know, whatever. And then I get the guy that had hit the most home runs. Say it was 25 home runs in the minor leagues. And I said, let me ask you a question. Out of those home runs, how many times did you try to hit a home run? He'll say one. Okay, how many times did you try to hit a home run? Oh, 100. Okay, so you're, you're one for 100 trying and 24 for 24 not trying. Why are you trying to hit home runs? It doesn't make sense to me. Hit the ball hard. If you hit it hard, it will go far But when you try to hit it far, guess what? Your body becomes discombobulated. Your hands and your arms and your legs and your body do not work together. But if you try to hit it hard, all that is is short, quick, and through. Short, quick, and through. That's all that is. And as a result of that, you're going to hit a home run. So let's have this this spot for the rest of the season, boys. And we'll just, everybody go out there and just see how hard they can hit it. Not how far, just see how hard they can hit it. That doesn't mean swing hard. That just means quick and through. Sure enough, the next year we get together, we have a meeting. I'm the, only, I'm the only guy there. It's just me and all the players. No coaches, no nothing. Nobody from the front office. And I go, okay, who, uh, hit, the, who hit the most home runs? Guy, yeah, 27. Different guy. Okay, so out of those 27 home runs, how many did you try to hit? Uh, two. And how many times did you try to hit a home run? 150. Okay, you've got to say it again. You say it again and again and again. And until these players get it through their mind that you don't have to swing as hard as you can to hit a home run, I mean, they're, they're going to cut down on their strikeouts. The games will be a lot more entertaining. The games will be a lot faster. And then we won't have to worry about, about, you know, a pitcher coming in and having to face three batters because the game will pick up its speed. It'll pick up its momentum. And there'll be more action. You can watch a baseball game now, and you might not see a ball put in play for like Six minutes. Six minutes as a result of all the strikeouts and walks and stuff like that. So I don't know. Name me commissioner for a day. We'll fix this. Shit. We'll fix it.
0: <laughs> all right. little rapid fire. Let me give you a name. Okay. Just give me what comes to mind. Mike okay. Schmidt.
1: Mike Schmidt. Great, great friend. Great player. Probably the best third baseman in the history of baseball. Pete Rose. All time hustle. Uh, great career. Um, had one minor problem. Gambling. Tony Gwynn. Artist. Artist with a fine uh, fine paintbrush. Uh, could maneuver a ball as good as anybody that's ever played the game of baseball.
0: Bo Jackson.
1: Oh, my God. Good pal. Um, unbelievable potential. Could have been a multi Multi-year all-star in baseball, if he didn't choose football. Uh, He came up to the major leagues, didn't know one thing about baseball. He learned quick, uh, became a great player, uh, decided to go play in the NFL, which I loved, actually, because I used to go watch him play all his games in Oakland, or in uh, the L.A. Coliseum. But uh, maybe the best athlete I've ever known in my life.
0: And this one I picked, it was really interesting to me because I've never – Talk to anybody. Well, I I probably have, but it glared at me. You played with him. He was a teammate of yours early in your career. Harmon Killebrew.
1: Oh my God! One of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. We had a sauna in Kansas City, and he and I used to go in it after every game, even in the summer. You know, it's 120 degrees on the turf. We'd go in there and take a quick sauna together, me and Harmon. And then somebody urinated in it one time, and it. And Harmon, till the day he died, thought it was me. And I'm trying to explain to Harmon, why would I pee in the sauna if I use it with you? Because it stunk so bad you couldn't get in for a week. I said, Harmon, why would I ruin our little time together? But just the greatest guy I've ever met. You ever watched the old, old Babe Ruth movie with William Bendix? you ever seen that? I have not. You don't even know who William Bendix is.
0: I don't. William, I'm not going to lie to you either. I don't.
1: Like Harmon Killebrew. He looked exactly like Harmon Killebrew, but what a dear guy! A gentle giant is what he was—a gentle giant. And he was only five foot ten, five foot ten, and could hit the ball a country mile. Ended his career with the Kansas City Royals. I asked him one time, and he got mad at me. I didn't ask him. Um, somebody said, "God, what was? How did they phrase this?" Um, oh, they, when I announced my retirement. When I announced my retirement, they said, Why are you retiring? You still had a you, you had a decent year. You hit nineteen home runs, seventy five RBIs. And I said, Well, the game, I just don't look forward to going to the ballpark anymore. Wins don't feel good, losses don't hurt. If I do something bad, I don't get mad. If I do something good, I don't get goosebumps anymore. So it's it's time to quit. And then I said something really stupid. I said, I don't want to be like Harmon Killebrew, a guy that I, I watched as a kid, and then he played his last year with the Kansas City Royals with me, and he couldn't play anymore. And I didn't want to go out like that. Well, sure enough, I run into Harmon, you know, five years later in Cooperstown when I get inducted in the Hall of Fame, and Herman pulls me aside. And he said, George, I always admired you as a person. And as a friend and as, as a teammate, but what you said really hurt my feelings. And I said, what are you talking about? And, and he set up basically word for word what I just said. And I said, Harmon, I didn't mean any ill respect by that. Or, you know, I didn't mean any harm by that. And he says, well, there are people that George make, and, and you made a lot more money in the game of baseball than I did. But for us, when we came up, we were making $6,000 a year minimum salary. I needed to play. I needed the money. And and I never felt so low in all my life because I felt like I betrayed a friend. You know, I threw my friend under the bus. And, and I tell you, what a great experience that was for me. It really was.
0: After the but 93 is, season. Harmon um, is
1: a guy that I don't think there's anybody that ever played against him that didn't respect them not only as a player but as a person
0: after 93 you retire 1994 they retire your number a lot of guys go and you know go into their team's hall of fame wall of fame not too many guys get their number retired they do it the year after you retire uh you go into that royals hall of fame it's 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 an organization you came as a kid at 18 years old uh you played your entire career. Very, very rarely done. Only a handful of guys do it. Almost these days, it, it never happens. Um, had to be. Had to be. You know, as, as much as you knew, you know, everybody knew George Brett. This great career. Everybody knew you, you were going to be. You know, your number was going to be retired in Kansas City. But when it happens to you, is it? Is it kind of make it real?
1: Yeah, it does. Um... You know, what's the old saying, what have you done for me lately? Um, You know, I retired in 93, and I think 94, they had the same – they had the ceremony and uh, put a statue out there in the outfield of me, and and it's just one of those things that I haven't done anything for lately, and yet they're still honoring me. So, uh, obviously, I was thrilled. I'm not the type of guy that has pictures of myself all over the house and and jerseys and stuff like that, but my wife redid – repainted a lot of walls and – you know, reupholstered some stuff in our home here in Kansas city. And when I came home from spring training, I have one Jersey in my house and she put it in my office. And that was the official Jersey that they retired. And she thought it should go in my office rather than in a closet downstairs. And so it's still on the wall. And that's the only bit of memorabilia. Um, I got three silver bats in my office. That's it. And the, the rest of it is just stuff, but it's, uh, it was an honor. Uh, Frank White, myself, Frank was second baseman for the Royals for 17 years. I think he won eight or nine gold gloves. And, and uh, Dick Hauser, I think, is the other guy. Yeah, he's the other guy whose number is retired. And, you know, you look around and you see when the Royals bring up Zach Granke and you go, God, this guy's got a chance to be here his whole career. Uh, Eric Hosmer, got a ch- chance to be here his whole career. Well, things happen in, in Kansas City. It's going to be tough now with the financial strains of a small market team compared to a large market team to keep really, really good players in the organization forever. Back when I played, it was a lot easier. You know, if you're a really good player, you made $3 million. If you were not a good player, you made a million dollars. But now if you're a really good player, you're making $30 million or $35 million and Royals can't afford that. So I think it's going to be a rarity in Kansas city for someone to spend their whole career in this organization. Uh, you look at Milwaukee, Robin Yount was able to do that in Milwaukee. Um, even Paul Molitor, great player. You know, he bounced around quite a bit at the end of his career. But uh, you saw Derek Jeter ending his career. You saw Tony Gwynn end his career. Cal Ripken end his career. All with the same team they started with. I don't think you're going to see it anymore unless a player comes up in the Dodgers or the Yankees or whatever. You saw the Cubs, what they did with Chris Bryant this year. Get rid of him. You would think he might be a guy. But, um, yeah, it's a rarity nowadays for someone to sign out of high school or college and play 15, 20 years in the same organization. I just don't think it's going to happen much.
0: 99, big call. Cooperstown. Once again, George Brett, 3,000 hits, career 300 hitter, you know, 1,500-plus RBIs. You kind of know you're going in. Everybody tells you, you know, of course, George, it's a foregone conclusion. Does it get – does that little is there any insecurity like everybody tells me i'm going in i know i'm going in but i don't believe it till i get that phone call
1: well basically yeah i mean the media votes on it you might have rubbed some media people the wrong way they might not vote for you because they don't like you um a guy from the hall of fame called my wife and said okay uh January 5th, okay, uh, we should call George. Uh, we should be done making the calls by 11 o'clock Eastern Time, 10 o'clock your time. So just make sure George is home. Okay, fine. Well, I wake up that morning. I got spilky's, man, I'm nervous. I, I couldn't sleep the night before in anticipation of getting in or not getting in and not really knowing. Um, you know, the last few years you play your career, and they always, everybody says future Hall of Fame or future Hall of Fame. Well, you don't believe it until it happens. And so I get up and I run downstairs and I'm some coffee, read the paper. I go, God, I got to do something. So I go downstairs and I think back then I was still working out really hard. I think I went down, ran five miles on the treadmill, getting ready to go in and take a steam in a sauna down in the basement. And yeah, I'm kind of, oh, nice and relaxed. You know, I get down about 9.15, 9.30, take a shower, sitting around the house. Some friends come over, a photographer from the newspapers over, Royal Front Office people are over. And they said, yo, you'll get the call by 10, 30, Right. So all of a sudden it's 10, it's 10 45, 11 o'clock. I'm going, well, what the, what the hell? I might, might not have made it. Finally, I get the call. And, and, uh, cause I, I remember asking somebody do I got to sit around this freaking house all day or what can I go? I want to go play golf. I want to go do something, you know? So sure enough, I get the call and, and, um, and, uh, you know, the guy's telling me, yeah, uh, Nolan Ryan's going in, Orlando Cepeda, Robin Yount, and, and you. And I said, well, am I the last call you're making? And they go, yeah, but, uh, Bud Seelig wanted uh, – we were waiting for Bud to get on the phone with Robin. And so that took a while. And so – that's why we're late i'm sorry and he says i just want to inform you you got 98 percent of the vote it's like the third highest vote total ever and i and that's when i started crying i you know obviously i was very happy but when they told me that i got 98 percent of the vote I, I lost it i started falling like a baby and um and uh then that day uh i went to royal stadium for a press conference a former press conference <clears throat> and i'm not kidding you brett there was 500 people there, ex-teammates, city governor, the, the mayor was there. Everybody was there. Season ticket holders, all the royal employees. And, uh, and, and so I go there and do the press conference. And uh, I remember Jamie, Cork, Jamie introduced me, which was yep. pretty cool because he and I were teammates for 17 years. And off and on for 17 years. And to this day, one of my dearest friends in baseball. But he's the one that introduced me. And that, and that was really special. And then a friend of mine, Ted Waite, who started Gateway Computers, gave me his jet to fly me to New York. And that's when I realized I was a Hall of Famer when I was flying on a private jet. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty awesome. Few <See>, and <laughs> far between. I mean, guys like now, I mean, Derek Jeter, when he flies to Cooperstown, A-Rod, when he flies to Cooperstown to see Derek Jeter, dead the Duck on September 8th. These guys are all going to fly in on their, corp- on, their, on their private jets, and I'm going to fly in on Southwest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing what like it i got to I got to go a back a few, few
1: decades make.
0: yeah I got to go back and, and see the the ceremony a few years ago uh, it, it's a pretty awesome are you
1: going place. this year it's, are you going this year
0: I'm not going to go this year no okay but uh yeah, I, I saw went saw a couple Edgar years ago. you saw it yeah, Golan, yeah Golan, correct I, I saw it yeah yeah uh, no i i w- I was there for Trevor for Trevor hoffman and oh okay uh, yeah you know, it was it was amazing. What a good you watch guy on, he is!
1: What a good guy Trevor Hoffman is!
0: Tremendous! He's one of the best.
1: Oh, great guy! Yeah, he's a and, he's and, right it, out of Mike Sweeney's mold.
0: Yeah, and it, and it's amazing, you know, for everybody. You watch it on TV. You watch the ceremony. You know, you see it, and you think, oh, there's close family members, some some ex-teammates, and and you think it's this nice little cordial event until you get there and you know all the guests and family get to come in, up you know in the front in front of the stage but i remember going there and looking back and it and it was like it was like woodstock i'm going i had yeah. no idea oh, all these back. years yeah. how awesome that is how awesome that stage yeah. must be you know pretty yeah. pretty mm-hmm. pretty darn cool yeah george you work for the cool royals for now you you you've been an executive with them for for a lot of years and and I got to see my dad go through this. He works for the for the Washington Nationals uh, and he's been working, you know, he's been an executive with them for a lot of years. You both won world series. You we covered it in 85, you won with the Royals in 1980, my dad won a world series with the Phillies. But when the Roy, when the when the Washington Nationals in 2019 won the World Series, I saw my dad get emotional. And I said, dad, what was, you know, what's the big deal? He's like, Brett, it, it's kind of cool when you put a lot of work in on this side of the ledger and you finally see it come to fruition. That was his <clears> 2019 <throat> team. He's got that ring. He he displays it. You know, dad's not a big, he doesn't wear a lot of rings, but he has them displayed next to his Phillies ring. And I could just right. see he was proud of that. The work he's put in, you know, with this with this Nationals organization to to see, you know, not being a player, but being a part of that organization, he got emotional. You won, a, you won a, uh, a World Series as an executive in 2015 with the Royals. How is that and how is it different from from the, the one you won as a player?
1: Well, your dad obviously does a lot more work for the Nationals than I do for the Royals. Um, I'm a spring training coach. That's basically what I do. I go to games. I sit with the general manager. Sometimes he asks me a question. Sometimes he doesn't. I stay there for about five innings. I have friends of mine that have suites at the stadium, you know, general manager suite. There's no food and no alcohol. I go upstairs one level and I have beer and I have hot dogs and hamburgers and chips and dips. And I usually go up there for a couple of innings and then go home and watch the last inning on TV. But it was really special for me because I've been involved with the organization since I retired and, like, when we sign Eric, when we draft Eric Cosmer, you know, they bring him into Kansas City, and I always go over and I meet the whole family. And then I go watch him play on field six in spring training, the minor league games. And then the next year we sign a Mike Moustakis, and I meet him and his family. And all the draft picks that you meet over the years and stuff, and you watch these guys procure through the minor leagues, you watch them get better and better. You're a part of it. And, 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 you give them a little bit of advice. You give them a tip here, a tip there. Do they listen? Sometimes, sometimes they don't, but to see them come up to the organization an organization that I've been with for 50 years and they, and they win the ultimate, the world series. I mean, obviously it is so special and your dad got emotional. I got emotional. I really did. I got emotional. It's, uh, a lot more nerve wracking, uh, sitting up in the front office or, or in the suite watching the game because you have no control over what goes on on the field. As a player, you can control what's going on. So you're basically just watching, hoping, and praying that good things happen. On a baseball play, on a, as you, if you're a baseball player, you're out there performing. There's no praying. I mean, you're out there grinding, and you're doing everything you possibly can, every at-bat, every ball hit to you, to, to do the right thing. And you're just hoping that these guys can handle the pressure and do all those things. And I remember when we beat the uh, God, Baltimore Orioles in the playoffs, they had runners on second and third. No, it was uh, to, uh, Toronto Blue Jays. The year we won the World Series, we had runners on second, they had runners on second and third. We had a one game lead, a one run lead in the on top of the ninth inning in Kansas City. Guy hits a hard ground ball to Moustakis at third base. He feels it, throws a perfect strike to Hosmer to end the game. We go to the World Series in 15. And I remember going in the locker room and everybody celebrating and stuff. And I'm not celebrating with them. I'm just standing off to the sidelines out in the back. And then when everything calms down, I go in and I'm shaking everybody's hand. And I asked Moustakis, I said, Mike, let me ask you an honest question. And he goes, yeah, well, George, what's that? What's that? he's all hyped up. I said, did you really want that ball hit to you in that situation? Because if he makes an error, they take the lead. And he said, I was praying for it. That's when I knew he became a ball player. That's when I knew that he was ready to play and perform at the level he did. In the World Series, following that, we ended up beating the Mets in six games. So yeah, you feel emotionally attached to these guys in a way. Your dad's more of a go to the office and uh, sitting in office and working on trades and stuff like that. I don't do that. I just talk to the players and hopefully get them in the right mental attitude to play. And I felt very, very good for Hosmer, Mustakas, Kane, Escobar, the whole crew, Ben Zobras, everybody. They're all they're all part of your family. And and I always say this to all royals. Brad, I would have said this to you if you ever played one day in the Royal organization. Every spring training, I go around and all these new guys in the organization, I go, welcome to the Royals. You'll die a Royal. You're going to die a Royal. You know that? You're going to die. Once a Royal, always a Royal, in my opinion, because that's what my life has been like. I'm very fortunate. 50 years in one organization. God, I feel like Red Chains, you know, <laughs> with, the, with the Cardinals, you know. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a good marriage, Kansas City uh the town and me and and me and the royals it's been uh it's been a great marriage i wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world
0: what a run yeah and unique nobody gets to do that more pretty awesome george brett hall of famer uh i really appreciate this has been great it's been a lot of fun uh was a pleasure well it's always fun
1: it's always fun talking memories you know good memories we're not talking bad memories we didn't no, talk we're talking about losing good ones. with the Yankees in 76, 77, 78. You didn't bring up <laughs> Shambliss's home run. You didn't bring up a lot of those stuff that I would have said changed the subject. No, it was, uh, it's always fun to walk down memory lane. And uh, it's amazing, Brett. Uh, the goosebumps that you can still get on your arms when you bring something up. I mean, I was getting goosebumps on my arm thinking about some of the things we talked about. So thanks for making me feel young again and bringing back all these great memories. It was a lot of fun. Did I, Was that awesome. longer than Reggie's show?
0: Nope, we didn't break the record, but we're close. Oh, yeah. it, it might be okay. a two-parter. Well, here's what well, we do I'm gonna, though. I'm
1: going to see. I'm going to see Reggie tonight at the ball game, so I'll tell him I did your show yeah, today. tell, and I tell, tell him. You, tell you're him.
0: chasing his record. You didn't get it. All yeah. right, what we do it. Uh, what we do at each at the end of each and every podcast is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for one one more
2: question from the fans. Dano, gentlemen. George, gentlemen, gentlemen, I got a
1: voice for TV.
2: I got a face for radio, so that 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 gives okay. that gives both ways. But I appreciate it, George. This one comes from Jeff in Orland Park, and he wants to know this: what pitchers gave you the hardest time?
1: Uh, guys like uh, Tommy John uh, that didn't throw hard. Uh, I was probably like Brett. I like fastballs. I like guys that threw hard. But uh, the uh, Mike Flanagan's of the world, uh, uh, the uh, Tommy John's, the Jimmy Keys of the world, left-handers uh, that, uh, that were actually pitchers, not throwers. You know, they changed speeds a lot. They had good control, kept you off balance. Those are the guys that gave me the most trouble.
2: And as a follow-up to that question, the awesome wants to know this. Who was your favorite player as a kid, and was there any Hall of Famers that made you speechless when you met them?
1: Uh, I had a chance to meet Carl Yaskremski in 1967 when my brother was pitching for the Red Sox in the World Series. I was 13 years old, and Yaz just won uh, the Triple Crown. Uh, I went back to St. Louis for uh, for the World Series. And the next year, uh, my parents sent me to Boston. And I've um, and, uh, got a chance to go to the ballpark every day with my brother and uh, get to see Yaz play a lot. Uh, I batted like Yaz all through high school left-handed hitter. I batted like him all through the minor leagues. I tried to bat like him in the major leagues. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. Charlie Lau changed a few things, and uh, I didn't hit like Yaz anymore, but uh, I remember one time late in my career, or early in my career, and late in Yaz's career, the Red Sox would come in, and they would always hit early, like the Royals would do. We would hit three o'clock on the road, four o'clock at home. Well, so they're hitting at three o'clock, and I was the first guy to hit. Yaz was the last guy to hit. And he leaned on the cage and watched me take batting practice. And I've never been so nervous in all my life as having Yaz leaning right behind me watching me hit. And uh, after I got through with my swings, um, he says, George, can can I talk to you a minute? He says, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And here's a guy that I emulated my whole career, and now he's asking me how to hit. I mean, I thought that was really, really cool. And the other guy that, uh, that I admired uh, since I was an infielder growing up was Brooks Robinson. And then the first time I got to the major leagues so and I got a chance to play with, against Brooks, I uh, had our photographer take a picture of me and Brooks together. And every year we go to, I go to the Hall of Fame, I get a picture taken with Brooks, Brooks Robinson. So those are the two guys that I really looked up to as a kid. And I got a chance to play against both of them. And um, I'm able to call both of them friends to this day.
2: Baseball Hall of Famer, Kansas City Icon, George Brett. Thank you so much for coming on the Boone Podcast.
1: Okay, pal. It was fun. Mailbag.
2: All right, Booner, you know that sound. That's mailbag time, Dan. That is mailbag. Let's get it in. This one comes from Matt in Arlington. Brett, did you ever ask another player for an autograph? I wish I would have asked
0: more looking back. Uh, uh I don't think I did, but you know, that's, that's not true. Uh, in the early two, when somebody would send over a request um, for me, you know, would Brett sign a bat or a ball? If it was somebody I wanted, I would say, yeah, and tell them to send me one back. So yes, I did. Uh, at all-star games, I would put my Jersey out like everybody else to get it signed by the players. Uh, certain teams I played on. If, if we had a really good team, went to the postseason World Series, uh, I would put balls out and have my teammates sign it. But I think individually, I, I don't think I ever physically went over to the other locker room and asked somebody for an autograph.
2: Gotcha. All right. And the last one comes from Allen in Florida. Brett, who are your candidates for manager of the year, AL and NL?
0: <sighs> wow. That's... Well, I got to go with Tony Larusa. Nice, a lot of, a lot of, uh, not controversy, but a lot of pushback. And you know, as Tony's time kind of come and gone, I've always been a proponent. I think he's good for the game, uh, so he's got to be a candidate. Uh, if you go over to the, let's see, the National League. Man, you you gotta consider Craig Council with the Milwaukee Brewers.
2: Very cool. Very early. Cool.
0: That's the early running. A lot to still shake out. We've got another six eight weeks left in the season, so uh, let's see how the how the chips fall and how the how the postseason stacks up.
2: Well, this podcast stacked up nicely, so we want to thank everybody for tuning in. George Brett was great. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content would be Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the move podcast i'm dan levy thanks for listening see you the next one